As we prepare to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word together, we ask that You would fill us with the knowledge of Your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of You. Strengthen us with all power according to Christ's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And here are our prayers, for we ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that many of them on page 282. Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible between Judges and 1 Samuel. And we want to start a new series this evening going through the book of Ruth. And so it's always good to begin at the beginning um, and then go to the end and then stop. That's always a solid policy. Uh, So we want to begin at the beginning of this book, uh, Ruth chapter 1. And we want to read the first five verses together and think about what we read here. So Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and this is God's own word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land... And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two children were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, as I said, we want to begin a new series through this book, and like any book, you need to understand the setting if you're to make sense of what you find there. Um, It's always important to know when a book is taking place, where a book is taking place, uh, so that you understand that, and that's true of the Bible um, as well as other books. If you picked up a book and it began Berlin 1946, that would tell you something about the setting of the book, right? It would tell you that World War II is over. But you would have been in a Berlin that had been bombed by about 70,000 tons of Allied bombing during World War II, so it would hardly have had time to rebuild. So you'd be talking about a time of disaster, a time of destruction going on. And um, so every story has that kind of setting. And Ruth, being a book of the Bible, not only has a setting in time and history, um, it also has a setting in redemptive history that's important to understand if we're really to, to get the meaning of this book and to see where it functions uh, in the Word of God as He revealed Himself. Covenant, covenants make all the difference in redemptive history, where we are in the covenant history of God's dealings with His people. It's always important for understanding redemptive history and where we are, wherever we are in the Bible. And so I thought as we begin this study of this book, it's important for us to understand the covenant realities that are at work at Ruth's time. Uh, the, the setting for this story in, in terms of the covenant realities And in just these first few verses, I think we see uh, three realities that are being spelled out for us. First, the reality of national disaster that has come on the people of Israel. 
Second, personal disobedience that's seen in this particular family. And finally, the royal promise that God is going to fulfill through this family, and we might even say in spite of them. Um, And so that's what we want to think about as we think about the covenant realities in which this book takes place. National disaster, personal disobedience, and royal promise. Um, So first we want to say this is a time of national disaster, and we're cued into that right at the beginning of the book. Um, It starts, in the days when the judges ruled. Um, And that automatically casts a pall over the story. Um, That was one of the reasons we read Judges 2, is because it reminds us what kind of time that was. Um, It reminds us what kind of time it was for Israel when the judges ruled. Uh, What characterized those days was severe covenant discipline from God on account of their sin. It was a time when the older generation had died, we read, and that a new generation arose that we were told did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They didn't know the Lord, they didn't know the work that the Lord had done, and they did what was evil in his sight, um, abandoning the things that he had told them to do, abandoning his covenant commandments. And as a result of their abandonment, they were given over to plunderers who plundered them. Uh, His hand was against them. And we were told in Judges 2, his hand was against them as he had warned and as he had sworn. uh, That he had told them ahead of time that this was going to happen if they abandoned him. He had warned them about it and he had sworn to them what he would do if this happened. Right, And so it should make us want to ask, well, where did he warn them? Where did he swear these things to them? Um, And that was at Sinai. Uh, when God made his covenant with Israel, um, he made promises to them, and the covenant had terms, and they were told, if you keep the terms, there are glorious things that will happen. Uh, You will experience the blessings of the covenant. I often think of them as the three Ps of the covenant. Uh, God will protect you, God will provide for you, and God will be present with you. He will be present with you to bless you. He will protect you, he will provide for you, he will be present with you. That's the wonderful blessings that came with obedience to the covenant, to the covenant. And Joshua's generation had seen that, had seen how God protected them. That no matter how many armies came out against them, whether it was one city or four cities or five cities or all the people of the land, no matter how many people came against them, the Lord was with them. And he provided them a land flowing with milk and honey, filled with good things that they had not made. They moved into houses they hadn't built. They moved into vineyards they hadn't planted. They took over farms that they hadn't worked. God gave all of these things to them. He provided for them just as he said. And he was present with them to help them and to bless them. But he had warned them that if they disobeyed the covenant, and his discipline would come against them, and it would consist of the removal of these blessings, that God would no longer protect them from their enemies as he had before. He would withdraw his protection from a time. He would no longer provide for them as he had before. He would withdraw his provision from them for a time. 
And that his presence would not ever fully depart from them, but instead of being present to help them, he would be present in judgment against them. And that was what was happening in the time of the judges. It was a time of national disaster. They had brought down the curses of the covenant upon themselves. And we're also being reminded of that here at the beginning of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. What is the famine in terms of the covenant? It's a removal of God's provision for the people. And I think we're meant to see that right at the outset of Ruth. Another part of that judgment that's been visited on the people, God's removing his provision as he warned and swore. He said in Leviticus 26, 18 through 20, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Uh, This is a famine that's in the land. It's all over the land. It's so severe that it's spread even to Bethlehem in Judah. Um, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and it probably has that name because it was a fertile part of the land. So for the famine to have reached in even to this part of the land shows just how severe and how widespread this famine has become in the land. So the time that judges ruled reminds us of all this that's going on. It reminds us also that even though it was a time of severe covenant discipline, God still was showing mercy to his people, Right? It was the time when the judges ruled. God had raised up judges in response to his people, crying out to him. He had not forgotten his promises. He had not forgotten his mercy. Uh, he had not forgotten his people. But how did they respond to the judges? Right? Just as we read in chapter 2, they, when the judges were raised up, as long as the judges were alive, uh, the Israelites had deliverance. But when the judge died, they went back to doing what they'd done before. Um, And even worse, we're told they they acted in ways that were more corrupt than what had come before them. So the time the judges ruled is not just a cycle, you know, rolling around like this. It's a cycle of going down. They're more corrupt than they were before every time a judge departs. And that, that cast, that pall that's cast over this story is meant to come to us when it were told it was the time when the judges ruled and a famine was on the land. It was a time of cursedness. It was a time of trouble. Um, That's the setting in which this story takes place. And before we move on and consider other parts of the story, I think we need to pause and be reminded here of the seriousness of sin. Um, If we're ever tempted not to think of sin as seriously as we ought to, we should remember these instances of how seriously God takes the sins of his people. His wrath is kindled against it. He won't just leave it lie, unchecked or tolerated among his people. He disciplines those he loves. This is a reminder of just how much God hates sin. It's also a reminder to us, I think, that every generation of God's people has to be concerned for our own walk with the Lord. Um, It's a reminder here that generationally God's people can go forward and backward. Right? Joshua's generation had known the Lord. They had walked with the Lord. They'd been blessed. They'd followed a generation that died in the wilderness for its unbelief and faithlessness. 
And that faithful generation was followed by another generation who didn't know the Lord and didn't do what he told them to do and who experienced the curses of the covenant. It should be a reminder to us that every generation needs to take care how we live before the Lord. Um, it's no good to say, well, we come from people who kept the word. Um, the question that always comes to us, are we a people who keep the word of God? Are we a people who are fighting for righteousness and against sin in our lives? Because the consequences of sin are serious. Um, even when we confess in the canons of Dort that God holds all of his people, he, his saints will be preserved by him. It also reminds us that when we fall into serious sin, there are serious consequences. We don't, we don't fall out of God's grace. We're not lost, but we will experience the, the consequences of our sins, like great saints like David did, like Peter did when he sinned. Um, sin is a serious business. There are serious consequences for sin. And ultimately, the cross of Jesus Christ tells us just how serious the consequences of sin are. Uh, they, they cannot be removed from us except by the death of the Son of God, body and soul on the cross. That's how serious sin is. That's how disastrous the time is that we're reading about. And it wasn't just a time of national disaster writ large. This is a story of personal disobedience as well. Uh, this family that is presented to us here is also a disobedient family. We're introduced to this man, Elimelech, and his family. And we might say that in them we see Israel in a microcosm. Uh, just as we know that the time of the judges was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this is a family that seems to be doing what is right in its own eyes. Um, what does Elimelech do at the beginning of verse 1? A uh, man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Um, this is a story of personal disobedience that is presented to us as well, And it's presented to us very interestingly in different ways by the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a reminder to us here the Holy Spirit is an artist. The way he tells the story shows the art with which he brings the story to bear of the disobedience of their family. We see the picture of Israel's difficulty and decline in the names of the people involved here. Um, the names of the people involved tell the story of disobedience and decline. Um, the name Elimelech means God is my king. And the name Naomi means pleasantness. Right? So that, that sounds very promising, doesn't it? God is my king is marrying pleasantness. Um, that, that should leap off the page at us as, okay, a wonderful marriage. Surely this marriage will be fruitful. But then they have two sons, and they name them Malon and Kilian. Malon means great infirmity. And Kilion means destruction through wasting away. If you're looking for children's names, here are two I don't recommend. Um, one of my professors in seminary said we could roughly translate these names as sicky and weaky. <laughs> it's like you imagine having two people saying, here are our children, sicky and weaky. Um, but that's, you see how the Holy Spirit, even in the names these people have, are painting this picture of decline. God is my king and pleasantness have sicky and weaky as children. Um, it's showing even in the story that this decline that's true of the nation is also true of this family. Uh, this declining picture is given to us first in the names of the people. We see this 
picture of disobedience in who they are, and we see a picture of disobedience in what they do. They abandon the promised land to become sojourners. Um, And that might strike us first just as facts, right? Okay, they abandoned the promised land and became sojourners. But there's a theological punch to that. Because what was the promised land? It was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to sojourners, right? Sojourners who had no place of their own. The promise was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob who were sojourners in the world. That God promised that he would raise and make from them a great nation and that he would give this nation this land. Um, And even as we read in Judges 2, when, when the people hear the word of God and they all weep, they went back to the inheritance. They went back to the possession that they'd been given in the land. It was a reminder that every family had been given a portion by the Lord. Right, that, that It wasn't just the place you lived, it wasn't just your address, you saw that place as the place that had been given you as an inheritance by your God. It was a reminder that God had fulfilled his promise to those sojourners and gave them a place of their own, a promised land flowing with milk and honey, a possession to be their own. And what does Elimelech do with his possession? He abandons it to become a sojourner. You see how this is not just a fact being shared with us by the Holy Spirit, but a theological problem that's being presented to us? They choose to leave the possession that is theirs, the inheritance in God's land, given to them by their God, so that they can be sojourners again. And sojourners where? In Moab. Right? That would be like the worst choice you could make of places to sojourn. As if it wasn't bad enough to go back to being a sojourner, to go to be a sojourner in Moab is almost the worst thing you could think to do. It would be almost at the top of the list of places not to go would be Moab. It was one of the old enemies that had afflicted the people of God. Right? So severe was their opposition to God that God had declared in Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. That's, that's what a serious opposition there was to Moab in God's word. And it wasn't just an old rivalry or an old enmity. This was something that was still alive and well in the time that the judges ruled. Ehud the judge had to be raised up against Moab. Jephthah the judge had to be raised up against Moab. They're not just an old enemy, they're a continuing enemy. So to go and be a sojourner there is one of the worst decisions you could make. Um, And that fact is driven home when we see how they end up. What happens to them where they go. Look at the end of verse 2. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Uh, Remained there is a description that gives the impression they have no plan. Right? They're no longer sojourning. They're not dwelling there. They just are remaining there. That description almost makes us want to feel like we should be asking, okay, now what's the plan? You're there. 
What, what is the plan? And it's meant to kind of tell us they don't really have a plan. They're just there. They don't really know what they're doing there. Uh, there's no real plan for the future. Uh, they end up really without a plan, and ultimately the end is death. Right? The sin of Elimelech culminates with his death in Moab. Away from Judah, away from the promised land, he dies. And I think we're meant to see his death here as the culmination of his sin and disobedience. But when someone dies, it's not always to be seen as a judgment from God. But I think here it's presented to us as a judgment from God. He dies away from the Lord in the land of Judah. And the sin of Elimelech continues into his sons. They don't go home. They stay in Moab. Not only do they stay in Moab, they marry Moabite women, which was also prohibited by the law of God. Um, And they too die in Moab away from the promised land. Um, They all pay the penalty for their sin. The wages of sin is death, and they pay the penalty for their sin. And they're left, we're left at the end of this passage with Naomi alone. Right? It's presented to us this way because she's the only one of these women who is part of the covenant people of God. That's why her daughter and daughters-in-law are not reckoned as part of hers at this point. Um, it's a grim picture that this ends with. The implication is these two sons, though they were married for 10 years in Moab, had no children. And, and again, not always when people don't have children is that a judgment from the Lord. But here I think this is meant to be seen as a judgment from the Lord. They have no children. And these men die, leaving no one to take their portion of the land. Leaving no one to inherit what the Lord has given them. And Naomi is left alone. Right. Pleasantness has come to ruin. Right. To be a widow in that society meant you had no home, you had no support, you had no hope, you had no future. It's a story of personal disobedience as well. Um, are we feeling the pall that's cast over this story? Um, well, you'll be happy to know that there is hope held out to us in this story as well because the covenant realities that are presented here are not just national disaster and personal obedience, but also royal promise. I think this passage holds that out to us as well. This is the sad story of the consequences of covenant breakers, right? famine, suffering, death for faithlessness and disobedience, But there is a promise that underlies all of these things. The Lord had warned and sworn at Sinai that this would be the penalty for breaking the covenant. But he had also reminded his people that he would not be angry with them forever. And that he would not abandon them completely. Because there was another covenant that stood behind that covenant at Sinai. The covenant of grace that God had promised to the fathers. That behind that covenant, there was that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I will be God to you and to your offspring after you for an eternal covenant. I will be God to you and to your offspring forever. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
Even after all the covenant curses were announced at Sinai, the Lord had said, But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. They might be unfaithful, but He is the Lord. He will not be unfaithful. He will not forget His people. He will not cast them off forever. Um, It's a wonderful reminder and and a wonderful witness to us that the Lord remembers His promises and that His purposes stand in spite of His people's wickedness and failure. And how does God save Israel from disaster? Well, in the first place, he ruled up, he raised up judges to rule. We're reminded that that was an act of mercy by our God. But the book of Judges also taught us something else that was important for the people of God, that part of their problem was they had no king. Um, As the book of Judges goes on and things go from worse to worse, we often hear that refrain, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But as the book goes on and things get worse, there's another refrain that starts coming up towards the end of the book of Judges. The reminder that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What was the Holy Spirit teaching them as he repeated those things together? Um, That the lawless state of the people and the lack of a king were problems that went together. The part of the problem they had was that they didn't have a king. They had judges occasionally to rule for them, but they didn't have a king to shepherd them. And that what they really needed was a king. That's the note on which the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king meant no true worship, no righteousness, no justice, no peace. They're the very sad last words of Judges. But what does this book begin with? It begins with tragedy. It begins with trouble. But it begins with a man from Bethlehem. And not just any Bethlehem, but Bethlehem in Judah. And he was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now what do we think when we think Bethlehem? We think of a king too, don't we? We just had Christmas just passed. He he should be fresh on your mind, right? The Lord Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem. But as people read this book, at their time, and they read a man from Bethlehem they also would have thought of a king. They would have thought of King David. This is where they knew he was from. And we know that this book was written after King David was born because the last words in in Ruth are recording the birth of King David. Um, And that really is the link that Ruth provides between Judges and between 1 Samuel, which is the story of God raising up a king after the judges ruled. And so this book functions importantly to remind God's people of the royal promise that God extended to them through David. What was the problem that addressed, that was addressed by his people, but the need that God addressed was raising up a king. 
That was the real problem in the time of the judges. There was no king. And who did God raise up for his people? He raised up David. He raised up David to be a king. And both the way the book of Ruth ends and even the way it begins mentioning Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it would have said to people who read, the king is coming. The state of the world is terrible, but the king is coming. That's what this story would have said to them. They would have said, yeah, the time of Judges, that was rough. There was no king in Israel, but the king is coming. The king is coming who will bring peace to the kingdom. That's what Bethlehem would have meant to them. The king is coming. The one who would come and who would shepherd the people. Who would lead them out of this state of false worship and faithlessness. The one who would establish peace and justice in the kingdom of God. The one who came, and when he came, we had a king that was not our king like the nations, like they had in Saul, but God's king. The king that he raised up for himself, who gave God's people what they needed. When they saw that name, Bethlehem in Judah, they would have thought, a king is coming into this sad situation. And it's a wonderful thing for us to be at this point in redemptive history and to know that the king God's people needed has come. Uh, Not David, who was a great king and who did great things for the people of God, but King Jesus, who is a greater king, who has done things for God's people that David could never do to actually save his people from their sins and deliver them from national disaster and personal disobedience by not only ruling over them as a righteous king, but dying for their sins. The story of of Ruth is ultimately the royal promise that's not fulfilled in David, but fulfilled in the one who is great David's greater son. Um, Part of the reason God established the promised land was to be a picture of heaven. That's why there were to be no enemies in. They were all to be driven out because unholy things cannot enter into heaven. That's why it was to be a land where God's people obeyed him and where he dwelt with them. It was meant to be a picture of heaven. In the same way, David as a great king was meant to be a picture of that greater king to come who would deliver his people and bring peace to the kingdom. And we know that Jesus Christ is that king the king that God's people need, who brings us into his kingdom of perfect righteousness and holiness where all of God's people will live with him in perfect blessedness and peace with our God forever. And it's interesting as as we reflect and as we, we finish our reflection on these opening verses to think about how Jesus saved us as our king. He left his place in heaven to become a sojourner here. He left his place in heaven to become a sojourner here in this sin-cursed world for our sakes. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, the consequences of our sin, which was death, body, and soul. And he was cut off out of the land of the living for our disobedience, that he might pay for our sins on the cross and set us free from them. But by his death... Our king has conquered 
and has driven out our enemies. He has actually done for the kingdom what needed doing. Driven out our sin, driven out our enemies, and is coming again soon in glory to make all things new. A kingdom where people will not do what's right in their own eyes and will not suffer the loss of his protection and his provision and his presence. But for the king to come and be who he's always been for us, the one who defends us and preserves us in the salvation he has won for us and who governs us and rules us by his word and spirit. And when he comes again in glory, there will be no unclean thing in his kingdom. It will be a place where righteousness dwells and where justice dwells and where his people find peace. This book is a reminder that God has made promises and that his promises don't fail and that everything he's promised to his people finds its yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the story of this book. And I hope it interests us to read more about how God provides uh, the king that his people need. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. And even though it's difficult to read about the state of your people in these days, we thank you that the ultimate story of this book is that you are a God who fulfills your royal promises. We pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with those promises that our king has made to us that he will never leave us or forsake us and that surely he is coming soon. And so all of our hearts say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Hear us and help us until the king comes, we pray, for we ask in his name. Amen.